Hi everyone, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA, I start to say UCLA because our guest today is from UCLA, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is March 3rd, 2022, and we're chatting with Dr. Bennett Novich, Professor of Neurobiology and the Broad Center of Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Yeah, say that, several, say that several times in a row. I've actually practiced it a couple of times, and that's as good as I can do. So hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? So Ben's interests are in brain and spinal cord development, specification of cell types, and circuit formation. And that's my read of his uh, interest, not, not his. He can correct me if I'm wrong. He uses human cell-based models to understand the developmental origin of circuit dysfunction and brain disease. And joining us is our own local expert on these very same issues, uh, Jenny Shea. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, Ben, you build designer cortical circuits from scratch. Using pluripotent stem cells to evaluate their cell types, connections, physiological function. Sometimes you make them out of cells from patients that have a genetic disease, like Rett syndrome, and you're able to identify aspects of the disease functional phenotype in those circuits. Uh, it sounds so fantastic, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, to me, the most mysterious thing is all the different cells you that you start with, you start with the same cells, you treat them all the same, and yet you can end up with lots of different cell types. For example, all the different cortical interneuron types that you get from the ganglionic eminence. Of course, that happens in normal development too, but there could be a million other things happening in normal development, but you know what you've done to these cells. So that's amazing. So to get us started, could you in broad strokes just sort of summarize what you've learned about what's required for a set of cells to differentiate into all the different neuron types that are found in the cortex, wire themselves together, and to make a working circuit? Well, I mean, I'd say that like, I mean, really the, the master is nature. Because uh, what we're doing is essentially just um, recapitulating what happens in actual real human brain biology. So what we're doing um, is we, you know, the things we learned was that the way you start off with your cells, like with the starting place of the cells in terms of the state of their pluripotency, which means basically their developmental potential to give rise to different cell types in the body, that can matter. So you could basically get good or bad outcomes depending on, you know, where the cells start from. And then what we're doing is we're, we're basically steering the cells to first form neural tissue. And then the neural tissue has a lot of self-organizing principles and the cells uh, communicate with one another. And that's part of the, I think, the process by which different cell types are born because you know, cells kind of know that they have a place and they can communicate with their neighbors to say that you do this and I'll do that. And that's one of the ways in which you end up with the diversity of cell types. I mean, there's some tricks that we've learned along the way. Like, like for example, when we make an organoid, we found that there's a sort of a sweet spot in terms of the numbers of cells that you have to put together to form the, the, the initial organoid. And we have to grow it in certain media conditions that allows for, for those, those, that, that, that ball of cells to grow and for the cells to epithelialize, which is to basically make the connections that they need to make with one another to make a, a vesicle structure and then to expand and differentiate and so on. So a lot of this is just sort of encouraging all the inherent mechanisms that the, the brain tissue already knows how to operate. So when a cell is, is born, when it undergoes the final 
division in the medial ganglionic eminence. How, what determines whether it's going to be a VIP cell or a cell? I mean, is it not determined yet? Maybe, and it's going to talk, it's going to like say, how many VIP neurons are there out there? Well, not very many. Maybe I'll be one of those. Is that, does it happen late like that? Or is it? Yeah, you've, you've hit upon like one of the more controversial questions, <laughs> <laughs> which is presumably why you picked that one. Uh, so, so to begin with, I mean, like when we make the cortical organoids, they don't have a capacity uh, to make many inhibitory interneurons, at least not with our, our particular organoids. Uh, but we can we can direct them to make basal ganglia and to make the the progenitors for the inhibitory interneurons by treating them with uh, patterning factors that we know operate in, in embryogenesis to ventralize the cells. So we, something called sonic hedgehog is the the pathway that's used to ventralize, and we can use chemical agonists of that to to make the organoids turn into the progenitors for the inhibitory interneurons. What happens then is still quite mysterious. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of studies that are going on. I'd say that the most advanced are actually right now in you know the area of rodents, you know mouse studies in particular, trying to understand where does the diversity come from. And so there are two, you know, at least two models that are that are generally thought of. One is a positional model, which is one that um, is kind of near to my heart because uh, I used to work in the developing spinal cord, and one of the things we were interested in is there are different types of spinal neurons, motor neurons, and different types of interneurons, and they all form in a kind of a, a a dorsal ventral register along the spinal cord, and that all is related to um, signaling um, gradients that are, that exist along the dorsal ventral axis of the spinal cord, of which sonic hedgehog is one. And so there's a there's a clear register of progenitor groups which give rise that are dedicated to the formation of, of individual classes of neurons. And so when we get to the basal ganglia, I think in broad strokes that is true that there are like more ventral and less ventral progenitor populations that would be more likely to give rise to, you know, say the cholinergic neurons or other, you know, somatostatin neurons and all that. Uh, so this is like MGEG, sorry, MGE, LGE, and so on. Uh, but then there's also potentially diversity within each one of those progenitor pools. And so there's a lot of interest in whether or not there are like temporal mechanisms by which one neuron is produced at an earlier time. And then other types of neurons are, are produced at later times. There are there's evidence for, you know, kind of like post-mitotic changes in some cases, I think, for, you know, for, for neurotransmitter phenotypes. And, you know, you can imagine there are other mechanisms by which you could contribute further to diversity. So it's a little bit of everything, I would say. And one of the things that struck me in your talk today was that there's something like the ratio of these excitatory to inhibitory cells seems to be regulated somehow. And like you mentioned, something like for every two or three excitatory neurons, there's one inhibitory neuron. And it's amazing how that can be coordinated so precisely, even in an in vitro system. Yeah, no, this is, this is actually like something that amazes me as well. So like what you're hitting upon is uh, that you know, like when, when one looks at an intact brain in many species, that there's this magic number of about like you know, 20 to 30% or so of um, the cells are inhibitory, uh, where the rest are excitatory. And how do we achieve that balance? And in our model, we're taking these two different types of organoids, one that's predominantly excitatory because it's coming from a cortical developmental pathway, 
and then the other being a largely inhibitory because it's coming from the ganglionic eminence developmental pathway. And we stick these two pieces together. And the interneurons can migrate from the, from the ganglionic eminence into the cortical organ weight, and then we see this population of you know, mixture of so. So how, how can we account for the, the like the precision? I mean, I, I mean, a precision is probably an overstatement, but you know, like this, this kind of range of, of, of density of the inhibitory cells. And we don't really know, um, but it's something that is, <laughs> I had a conversation with another investigator from, from UCSF earlier this week, who's been doing experiments of transplanting um, the MGE, the medial ganglionic eminence progenitors from one animal into another in, and trying to like rescue uh, developmental phenotypes and, and epilepsy as well. And he also has these observations that, that they've never seen overpopulation. So meaning that there is some sort of a regulative process by which the balance is maintained. And so I don't have a, like, a, like, a, like here's, here's the, the answer but my, one of the ways that I've been thinking about this so far, and I may change, uh, is that there clearly are, are things that are um, related to cell numbers in terms of uh, cell survival. So I think that, that there is, there's clearly in development, we know that there are mechanisms for, for assuring like the appropriate number of cells matches like the need for the circuits uh, by what are called neurotrophic mechanisms by which the cells that are excessive, if they don't make connections properly, they, they lack a reward signal that, that benefits their survival. And so if you have excessive numbers of cells, uh, they will. They won't. You know, participate in the in the in the circuit. They will die off. And we have seen evidence of that. If you make some uh, ganglionic eminence uh, um, organoids, and you look for certain populations of neurons, if you just left it as just a ganglionic eminence organoid, we don't see many of them at the end of the experiment. But when we do the fusions, we see more of them. So I think that there's something about being those cells being in the right environment that allows them to participate in the circuit and thus survive. And so I think that that's one of the primary mechanisms by which you could potentially account for why the balance is there. The other is whether or not there is just some sort of like limited availability for you know, synaptic connections on the inhibitory side, uh, synaptic connections from inhibitory cells. I, I, you know, if I'm kind of, you know, kind of going to make a, a flub of this, but you know, that they're more constrained to the soma and, you know, like less the branches, the, the, the more distal branches. And so they have like more limited real estate with which they were likely to be, you know, forming connections. And so that may also sort of like limit um, just the, the possibility of the, the connectivity that they could be making. So it's not that migration that is, regulates per se, it's the survival of the migrating cells, you think? Well, I mean, migration is, you know, so those cells, the inhibitory neurons do migrate, obviously. And so you can imagine, and you know, this has been well documented by many other people's studies, that there are developmental defects that affect migration. And you can definitely see like deficits in the interneuron populations as a, as a consequence of that. Um, but in our case, we, the, the mutations that we've been studying don't seem to impact migration. So thus we wouldn't see it in our system. But I, I think that migrations could definitely have an impact, but just not in our particular experiment. So what you just said about the ganglionic eminence organoid not surviving by itself very well makes me wonder about whether the cortical organoid is actually growing axons into the ganglionic eminence one. The ganglionic eminence gives rise to one of the biggest targets of cortical axons in the whole brain. And so why wouldn't that why wouldn't the cortical organoid innervate it? Do you know whether it does or not? We haven't really gone looking for it, but 
it doesn't surprise me that there is something going on because we have done these experiments where we um, and they were designed to principally to track the migration of the ganglionic eminence neurons going into the cortex. So we would label the ganglionic eminence organoid with a with a tracer and then watch that tracer move into the into the cortex. But we did as control, we would put the we would label the cortex and see whether or not any of that tracer would go over into the into the, the ganglionic eminence. And what we saw there was we didn't see a whole lot of, of, of cell soma, certainly not at the, so the cell bodies of the neurons, uh, which would be indicating um, like a mass migration. But if you wait long enough over time, you can start to see stuff kind of going into the ganglionic eminence. And what I never really, you know, um, went looking for was whether or not those were more neuronal processes rather than actual like cells themselves migrating, whether or not this was the axons or other processes that were, yeah. So you show these like really striking phenotypes, like in terms of this like hypersynchrony in the in the fusions of looking at mutant combinations, these MECP2 mutants compared to the control. And my my f- understanding is that these fusions, these fused organoids, are sort of development, if sort of more um, representing embryonic development developmental stages. So, but do you think that in the actual patients that they would be having these same circuit types of abnormalities that early, like we're like maybe in utero even, because it it seems like in real life, the patients, they're developmental, but not that early. Or, or is it possible we're just missing that because it's so inaccessible? Yeah, there's. I think there's several um, <laughs> several answers to or responses to your to your question. So one is, I think for sure we're missing things because I think that they're you know like we we don't we don't often like go looking for these things until they become a problem, and then that's usually not manifest until a child is born. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in the cases there are cases of I think some uh, some genetic epilepsies where you can actually see in utero um, hypersynchronies and, and such when it's, when, I mean, it, it has been done and has been observed. Um, another thing that may confound um, the, our studies a, a little bit, uh, or at least like trying to relate our studies to, you know, to the human patients for Rett syndrome is that the nature of the experimental design that we used. So in our experimental design, this is kind of like version one um, of the, of the experiment was to, um, to take uh, Rett syndrome patients who, themselves are actually heterozygous. So they basically have a, a gene mutation in the MECP2 gene, but it's only on one allele. And so the patients are actually mosaic, where only half of their cells, or on average, we'd say, um, are actually mutant. And so what we don't know is whether or not that has like some way, way of sort of like normalizing the activities and what we're actually creating um, because of the, mm-hmm. the experimental design is that we're making organoids that have no MECP2 in any of the cells. And so whether or not that is uh, that we're just seeing like a very, very severe version of what the patient would be having. That said, we are actually currently working on version two, which is to actually make mosaic organoids where we can basically start with the stem cells that are coming from a patient and we can, we can basically dial in the ratio of, of wild type and mutant cells together to create organoids of different mosaicism. And then we're looking to ask how does that manifest in terms of the the neural oscillation activities. Thus far, what we've seen is that they seem to have an intermediate phenotype, meaning that they seem to have 
um, less hypersynchronies, but they actually still show some, some defects in the oscillatory rhythms. And so we're excited about this because we feel like this might be a, a better model for the actual patient disorder. And at the same time, it also allows us to ask inter interesting questions about the, the way that um, mosaicism for, for a defect how does that manifest at the network level? So in other words, how many bad apples in a circuit does it take to bring the whole circuit down? So that's one of the you know, questions that we're trying to ask. I think I should say that the interest in this mutation and hypersynchrony that results is because this mutation is associated with epilepsy in humans. So uh, hypersynchrony and changes in oscillation are like, I don't know how much like, but a little bit like Epileptic. Oh, <laughs> thank you for rescuing me, Charlie. Yes, I mean it's very true. That, I mean the things that we see in terms of like the the epileptiform activities that we can see in these organoids, and you know I know that this is a, it's a very reduced model, but it has striking similarity. I mean Rett syndrome patients, I think it's like over eighty percent or something like that, um, have uh, have seizure um, episodes, and so it's a very high you know like high incident co comorbidity. So. I think it's um, the fact that we can see them at all, I think is quite irrelevant, I, we, we like to believe. And the electrical activity that's happening in the, in the, what's the right word? We shouldn't say wild type, but we say that when we're talking about mice or something. But in the normal, in the native, in the normal, whatever. <laughs> native yeah. there you go, I like that, the organoid is also interesting. It, there, it's mm -hmm. synchronized, it looks like it could be consists of cells bursting at a fairly low rate and could somehow play a part in network organization and synaptic arrangements. Does, uh, so I'm wondering about synaptogenesis along the time scale of the things that you're studying. When are synapses forming um, in the organoid, I guess in the organoid is what's interesting because it doesn't have to exactly correspond to anything that happens in the human development in time. I mean, we've. I mean, the thing that we've been very limited by is our uh, the resolution of synaptogenesis. This is something you know has has been dogging us for a while, and we've been making progress towards it, but it's still something that's quite difficult because the synapses are are small. Uh, it's not so easy to image with light micros like microscopy. Um, but we, we can do it and we have seen, we haven't been able to track, uh, some, um, you know, the, 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 the densities of different types of either excitatory inhibitory synapses. And we, you know, they, we see that they, they form exactly when you would expect them to form soon after the neurons are there, you can start to see the synaptic densities forming and we, we can follow those things out over time, but we haven't, we don't have a way to like look at, I think like in a dynamic way, you know, a dan dynamic manner, manner to actually look at synaptic remodeling in a real time way. These are things that may be technically possible to do. We just haven't done them yet. So I'm just sort of wondering if some of the answer to my original question about cell types and circuit uh, diversity mm -hmm. could be explained by electrical interactions between the cells, or ordinary synaptic interactions like the kind that septic plasticity and the kinds of things that create the control uh, network activity in, under normal circumstances. So if the cell types are all completely determined before the electrical activity happens, then that couldn't be participating in it. But if they're not, then it could. Is it 
Well, I mean, I think that like, you know, one part of it would be cell determination in terms of like the different types of cells, but you know, the the densities, the ratios of those cells. Like, even though we we say that like there's a you know set like ratio of inhibitory interneurons, I mean, like the composition of like do you have more of certain classes over others? That could have profound um, you know impact on the way that the circuit is going to function. And then on top of that, you know, you could consider just the activity of a given series of neurons in terms of like are they providing a, like a really strong, say, inhibitory drive, you know, that, and like, who are they connecting to? That's going to change the oscillatory patterns as well. So, you know, you could have some that like completely just like squash all oscillations and other ones that, that squash the inhibitors of those oscillations. And so depending on who's driving whom, you know, you could, you could see like changes in, you know, just the overall tone. So when things work out and the oscillations happen the way they're supposed to, that means that something like Right, and determining the different kinds of interneurons, right? This inert some interneurons end out on the distal dendrites, some on the soma. You have, see all the diversity of interneurons in the organoid that is normally seen in the cortex. Well, I'd say we, we see a lot. I wouldn't. I mean, I I would never want to say we see all, um, but we see, a, 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 in my mind, a pretty remarkable diversity. Well, I think I think your work is probably the one of the I would say gold standards because I've noticed so many like different classes of mature interneurons Dif- depending on the study and the different protocols people are using people are finding very different things and that but but interneuron differentiation maturation has always been like very tough for to, for IPS cells would yeah, you agree yeah. Absolutely true. But, that, you know, that's a lot of that comes from the 2D culture, which was where, you know, we, most of us were, you know, for the past decade. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the, the issue is there is that that you're in most cases, people were doing these things with isolated cultures. And if you have a monoculture of inhibitory neurons, they don't seem to mature. And, you know, they only get maturation when you transplant them into an animal. Um, or we would like to believe that when you put them into um, a context with the in you know, the organoid, where they're in contact with the, the cortical neurons or other targets that they might be interacting with, and so I think that there's something about the the feedback that neurons give to one another that drives their functional maturation. So part of what's happening is just working out the technology to make more and more elaborate versions of these circuits and. Uh, I wonder how far it'll go. So, you know, I'm anxious for you to see the cortex hook up to the basal ganglia, but the, but I'm also thinking about the thalamus. A lot of yeah. times people say, you know, thalamic uh, innervation of the cortex is partly determining the area, organization of cortical areas. And there's no thalamus there yet, but I suppose the thalamus could be sort of around the corner. Do we know how to make a thalamus? Yeah, so other so my lab hasn't done this, but other labs have. And so people are already on this problem of, of trying to look at like a thalamocortical um, organoid connections. And other labs um, have, have actually gone uh, to looking at um, looking for like outflow pathways for you know for, for neural activities coming from the cortical organoids. So for example, at least two groups have taken uh, cortical organoids and put them uh, together with either spinal cord and muscle preps come, coming from a mouse or created uh, spinal cord organoids or, you know, like mixtures of, of spinal cord neurons along with muscle cells and actually shown that you can get corticospinal connections forming from the organoid to the spinal cord cells and then the motor neurons from the spinal cord cells 
you know, making connections to the muscle such that you could elicit like a signal starting from the cortex and elicit a muscle contraction. So this has been done already. <laughs> so I'm surprised that wasn't you since you're the spinal cord. I'm surprised it wasn't you too, especially <laughs> since part of my lab has worked on the uh, yeah. the on the, 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 the spinal cord to muscle side of things. And we, anyways, <laughs> but I was I, I applaud the the other labs that have done these experiments because I think they they really show like. Uh, Again, like just the, the the possibilities of being able to sort of assemble these um, these different pieces of of the brain and and um, and spinal cord, and so I think it, it it kind of like gives me a lot of um, hope that we might be able to use these in you know like, as you said like to try to be able to study the interactions of one region of the brain on the other uh, for development. I think it's going to be really powerful. And we should mention something about the medical applications and especially personalized medicine, because I think that draws, drives a lot of this work. I mean, I'm super interested in making a whole brain that would work, but... I, I mean, another, you mentioned in your talk, you know, testing different pharmacological mm-hmm. agents. Another, another possibility for therapeutic strategy is gene therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, I know, I think a lot of people are trying to work on Rett syndrome, right? There's a a lot of companies probably working in this area. But I think one of the questions is, do you deliver MECP2 everywhere to every cell type? And when when is there a critical or a therapeutic window? And perhaps the organoid system could be part of that, um, just to answer some of those basic questions. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, the organoids, I, as, you know, I think that in just as an extension of IPS research, is a game changer for the field of therapeutic discovery because just the ability to be able to make human brain tissue uh, in a you know in a scalable manner is I think huge and this and, and the more that we are able to make things with with network like functions where is where we think the disease you know manifests is going to make it possible to you know to really like create models for a whole variety of different types of disorders and if you can reduce the scale of where you think the defect lies. You know, this then puts it into at least the arena of being, if it's not usable for high throughput screening, it's certainly for, for like the lower throughput screening and preclinical validation of a drug being useful for, for a given model. Um, I think that the, the question that you, you raise about like when could you, when would you need to intervene is a really, really tough one. And I've, you know, so far I'd say like the jury is, is, is very much out. Um, I, I'm not really going to be relating much here about organoid research, but you know, there's been a lot of um, research that's, that's going into animal studies where models for different disorders have been uh, created. Uh, I actually saw a w- really wonderful talk on um, Angelman syndrome recently and uh, some therapeutic a- approaches there to try to, you know, to restore, like using a gene therapy approach. And you know, some of the, I think the findings there suggest that you really do need to be able to put the gene in during a critical period of early development for it to be functional. And so this, you know, this will pose a, a significant challenge, uh, you know, like that we have to think about prenatal diagnosis and prenatal intervention potentially. Um, and so this is, you know, this is definitely going to be a, a hard puzzle to solve. On the other hand, you know, like a way that we're also trying to think about what we're finding from the neural oscillation side of things, that we know that if you have, for example, and I think that this is very connected to epilepsy research, that if you're having a seizure all the time, 
the other like functions of the brain that depend on, on oscillatory activities can't happen. And so even if we can just use the organoid platform as a way of identifying and testing various therapies that could intervene with, with, with seizure behavior, that could have a knock-on effect of, of really helping um, overall brain functions. And we also know, you know, it's, it's long been known that there's a high co comorbidity between um, seizure disorders and autism spectrum disorder, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we can solve one of those problems, I mean, maybe starting with the epilepsy uh, side of it, the seizure side of it, we may actually have some benefits on the other as well. Yeah, because my understanding is in these, these um, you know, developmental and epileptic encephalopathies or these DEE syndromes, mm -hmm. that it's the, the seizures kind of, they're sort of development, developmentally on track until the seizures start and then they regress. So I, yeah. to your point. I mean, and that, you know, getting back to like your question about like, you know, the Rett syndrome model, the fact that we see seizures from the outset here, you know, kind of potentially is like why the whole system is dragged down because it's potentially grown up with having that, that effect. But, you know. And especially, I think if the electrical activity is part of the normal network formation process, then abnormal electrical activity ensures an abnormal network formation process. And, uh, Getting back to your original <laughs> point. <laughs> so, uh, the best in the best scenario, these these things become patient by patient. I, I hear that all the time. So that's uh, in this case, the Rett syndrome. It's not really to that point, I guess, because we don't expect that it, it's one mutation. We don't expect that every patient is going to be different from every other patient. But in some some kinds of uh, disease that maybe something really patient specific is required. Is that is that part of the promise for the for the future for organized? Well, I'd say that I mean it depends on the disorder. I mean, uh, so even with Rett syndrome, um, this is something that we're we're actually setting out to to test. Is that we know that there are different. Um, gene mutations are all the same gene mutation. They're all, they're all mutations in the same gene, MECP2, uh, but there are different you know, ways in which the, the gene has been disrupted and the, you know, the proteins that are produced that seem to have either higher or lower clinical severity. So one of the things that we actually wanted to test to try to get to some of these questions is can we actually see gradation in um, the pathology or whatever we, we want to call the abnormalities in, in neural oscillations or other um, aspects of, of neural functions um, in um, organoids that are made from patients with these different, these different types of mutations. Because I think that that's something that's important for us to know is like how sensitive is the system to being able to distinguish more or less, you know, like a, you know, like something that's going to be truly like just debilitating from something that's that's more innocuous. So, because otherwise we just don't really know. Like, to, you know, like when you say like we want to like be able to try to match this to patients, we need to know a little bit more about just the the you know how effective the organoid model is going to be for different disorders. And so we need to know the range of of, of utility that it, that it has. And I mean, the hope would be that, you know, depend, I mean, when we talk about different diseases, I mean, we, we tend to like, I think, gravitate towards single gene mutations because as experimentalists, we, we know that they're far easier to, to work with than say sporadic disease. And sporadic disease is sort of like the, the, the great unknown that we really don't know how that's going to manifest in these sort of models. But that said, I think that if we can create organoid models from sporadic disease, we might be able to then 
look at the organoid itself using methods like you know, like single cell transcriptomics and start to identify clues as to which cell populations look abnormal or activities that seem aberrant, and then sort of de develop some new hypotheses about what the causes of those sporadic diseases are. But it's still, you know, it's a harder, it's a harder path to, to walk. Wow, that seems like a, a encouraging prospect for the future. So we, maybe we should stop there while we're ahead. Thank you very much, Ben Novich, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me for this conversation. And Ginny, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.